start knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Sometimes I feel like I'm knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. And I do get a little bit stressed about what's on the other side. So let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to preach your word, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. It's happened several times now over the last few years, and it's really uh, surprised me. In an email or a conversation, one form or another, Someone will say something like this. Peter, I think you're right about God reconciling all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the, of the cross. In other words, I think uh, everyone will really ultimately be, be saved. And that's great. That's great and all. But to be honest, I guess I, I'm struggling with that idea that, that I'm going to heaven. Because won't it just be insanely boring? First time I heard that, I thought, okay, that's just weird. Second time I, th I heard that, I thought, well, maybe we've been misrepresenting uh, heaven. Uh, recently I realized, gosh, that's what I used to think. That's how I once thought, but I no longer think that way, and why is that? In the fall of 1976, my sophomore year in high school, the movie version of the late great planet Earth came out. The movie The Omen had just come out. Everybody was talking about the end times, and I remember hoping, and I remember praying this. I remember praying, Jesus, I, I love you and all, but please don't come back before I get my driver's license and have sex. And Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm planning on waiting until marriage, so that could be a while. I wanted my driver's license because I wanted adventure. I wanted to go places. And I figured that in heaven there was no place to go because you're already there. And of course, it would be insanely, ridiculously safe in heaven, which I find to just be kind of insanely boring. And I wanted sex because, well, I just did. I wasn't sure why, but from Sunday school, in one particular Bible verse on marriage, I figured that if I missed it here in this world, I, I missed it forever. So I get it, why would anyone want to go to heaven? I googled the images of heaven. There were a whole lot of images just like this. Why would you want to go to this? Cumulonimbus clouds are really, really cool, but after a thousand years of cumulonimbus clouds, wouldn't you just like go, oh, Jesus, could we just like go to Cleveland and hang out at a 7-Eleven for a day or something, anything? The classical version, this version, I don't know if you can see that, that's a little bit better, but I think this Far Side cartoon sums it up best. Wish I brought a magazine. <laughs> My favorite episode of South Park was about uh, Satan trying to figure out how to torture Sodom Hussein in hell. The problem was that he really liked it there, so Satan makes a deal with God and sends Sodom to heaven to live with the Mormons who spend eternity making things out of egg cartons and yarn while singing songs about how lying hurts our hearts. See, heaven can kind of sound like hell at times. So boring. If eternal means forever without end, 
How could it not be boring? Even Disney World gets boring after your 15th, 20th time on Goofy's roller coaster, right? And if eternal means timeless, how could you ever go anywhere or do anything? That's, that's boring. Heaven sounds so boring and ethereal, I mean intangible, so unreal, boring, ethereal, and creepy, I mean strange, right, and foreign, and unfamiliar, boring, eternal, unfamiliar, and embarrassing. If everything is exposed by the light, and what's whispered in the darkness is shouted from the rooftops, well, that's embarrassing. Imagine how much shame we'll all feel and how repressed we'll all be. And well, that pretty much sums up my fears about heaven. Boring, ethereal, unfamiliar, embarrassing, and thoroughly repressed. But now let's read Isaiah. Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any other prophets in the Old Testament. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, you know that he's thinking Isaiah. So let's read a smattering of Isaiah, and I'll reference a few other prophets as well, okay? For several weeks, we've been talking about the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and why it is that we don't seem to, to believe them. So, so what I want you to do right now is just sit back for a spell and just listen. I'm going to cruise through this, okay? But this is Isaiah chapter 2, uh, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Verse 4, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and their assault rifles, like the guns in the song that we just sang, into power tools. I'm sure it meant that. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, that's the holy mountain, Eden, Moriah, Zion, Jerusalem. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 27, in that day from the river Euphrates to the of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Isaiah 60, lift up your eyes all around you and see. They're all gathered together. They come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. The sun shall be no more your light by day for bright, nor brightness shall the moon give you uh, the moon give you light but the lord will be your everlasting light 
And check this out. Your God will be your glory. What do you think your glory is right now? You're a snappy dresser? Well, your God will be your glory. Your sun shall, your sun shall no more go down, and your moon, your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 65, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. He's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things shall not be mentioned or remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For, for look, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Now, now that's wild, but they're gonna be babies. And you know where babies come from, right? Or an old man who does not fill out his days. And, and that's kind of wild. It's gonna be old men filling out their days. Next verse. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And he, that's weird, because he just said die. And he already told us he's going to swallow up death forever. Death will be no more, which reminds me of, of what Jesus said. Remember what he said? He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. There's like a dying that is also a living, as if you could lose your life and find it all, all, at, all at once, all in a moment. Next verse, and the sinner, okay, that's weird too, because um, no one will sin, and old things will not be remembered. So if you send and you go there, you won't remember. And yet, um, you'll be an old sinner. You see, I think maybe it means not remembered in the same way. Zephaniah prophesies, on that day, I will turn their shame into praise. Well, anyway, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed, or considered accursed, new revised standard, or lightly esteemed Young's literal. I think what he's saying is that even, even old sinners, even old sinners will live way past 100, and if they don't, everybody goes, something's wrong with that. They, these old sinners, shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So there's, they're, they're not going nowhere and doing nothing, right? They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, for like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work, the work of, of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. See, they're having babies. They shall not bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They, wolves, lions, and old sinners, shall not hurt or destroy that sin in all my holy mountain says the Lord. Isaiah 66, last chapter. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom. I'm pretty sure I didn't read that in 10th grade because that sounds not boring and entirely not repressed. And now the end of Isaiah. 
from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me. And that's everyone in Isaiah. And the Messiah has numbered himself with the rebellers. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. All that old flesh will be an abhorrence to all flesh, which is all people. As we preached last time, this only makes sense if it means all people will look on the corpses of all people in the valley of Gehenna, and praise God in Christ Jesus that he has delivered us from these old bodies of sin and death and transformed us into his city, his temple, his body of endless delight. Wow. And that's just Isaiah, a little bit of Isaiah. We don't have time for the others, but you see, they prophesy, I think, the same vision. And I hope you see that it's not boring, ethereal, unfamiliar. Maybe embarrassing in some sense, in some places, but definitely not repressed. And check this out. I was told by conservative evangelical professors in seminary that there was really no doctrine of an afterlife in the Old Testament. What the, I mean, why would they say such a thing? Well, I wanna quickly point out three reasons we don't believe the prophets, seven ideas to help us believe the prophets and then remind you why it matters. Three reasons we don't believe the prophets. Number one, Zionism. This is the belief that there will be or is a new earthly Jerusalem built in a newly constituted nation state of Israel. For most of Christian history, the church has taught that the New Jerusalem will come down from heaven and manifest a radically different reality from the reality that we now experience in this fallen world. Of course, the Old Testament, including the prophets, is all about a journey to a promised land that seemed to be a nation state named Israel and, and an earthly city named Jerusalem, and yet God made that promise to people that died in the wilderness long, long, long ago. And he made that promise to people that never fully occupied the land, and he made that promise to people that were exiled after the physical Jerusalem was destroyed several times. But the prophets prophesy that God will keep his promises. And the problem isn't that God has overpromised and failed to deliver, the problem is that we have not yet believed and not yet entered the land of which God speaks. And so God will give us his own spirit. He'll give us his own heart, a new heart, and cause us to enter that land by grace through faith. Now this was all tragically confused in the 20th century by absolutely horrific crimes perpetrated against the Jews, the politics of this world, and the founding of the nation state named Israel in 1948. Think what you will of that nation, but that nation named Israel is not simply Israel. If anything, it's Judah and Benjamin, which are two tribes from the 12 tribes that form the United Nation of Israel. The 10 tribes have been dispersed within the gene pool of humanity 
for the last 2,700 years, and the promise is given to them. Very clearly it's given to them, and even to us, because the gates of Jerusalem are always open, and all the nations of the world will come and worship God there. Modern Zionism, or modern Zionists, often claim, you see, that the prophets are talking about the Jerusalem in which the United States now has an embassy. But I've been there. And it's not true that no one hurts or destroys there. It's definitely not true that the gates are always open there and that the Messiah is exalted there. It's actually just the opposite. There's violence, division, and the Messiah is officially rejected by the state government. She's not the new Jerusalem. To me, it looks more like the old Jerusalem that crucifies the Messiah and storms the prophet who crucifies her groom. And when we, you see, we confuse the two, the, the new and the old, we have to assume that the prophets were just spouting banal, vacuous, vapid, boring bits of poetry. So we just read it and go, whatever. Number two, we don't believe because of Zionism and modernism. In the 20th century, we we're all taught that the only real things were things that we could comprehend within our conception of space and time, the way we perceive it, and that perception of space and time remains constant, that space and time are constants. We've called that science. But in the 21st century, science is now teaching us that modernism, particularly materialism, is arrogant, stupid, and profoundly unscientific. Of course, philosophers knew this all along. And so did the ancients. They knew that there are realities that don't submit to our comprehension. And in the words of Einstein, they knew that the distinction between past, present, and future is just a stubbornly persistent illusion. Well, modernism gave rise to some really bizarre forms of millennialism in the 20th century, particularly in the United States and Great Britain. And so we grew up with books like The Late Great Planet Earth and movies like The Omen and all these unbiblical maps of the end of the world, maps which are deeply tempting to Zionists. Why? Because, well, Zionists hope to participate in the thousand-year reign of Jesus from the modern city of Jerusalem where we now have an embassy. And so, of course, modernists can't really believe the prophets. For in the prophets, all the nations of the world come and worship in Jerusalem, and obviously all the nations of the world just won't fit in Jerusalem, or at least in our concept of Jerusalem. Now, saints do reign with Jesus, but according to the New Testament, it's happening right now. And we must always remember, the New Testament reminds us of this, that a day is as a thousand years with the Lord and a thousand years as a day. So number three, we don't believe because of Zionism, modernism, and individualism. You know, the prophets talk about peoples and tribes and nations as if we were really just all connected, even perhaps like in one body, in the body of one man, one Adam. And the prophets talk about a day that sounds like the seventh day of creation when everything is good and it is finished. So everyone praises God together for his judgment. <laughs> his judgment separates old hearts from a new heart, old corpses from a new body. Like Isaiah says, we will be threshed and gleaned one by one. So in other words, we will be judged as individuals 
and put back together as one body, one worshiping body on that day on the holy mountain. So anyway, those are just three reasons I think we don't believe. And now I'd like you to remind you of seven ideas that would help you believe. Number one, eternity. Now this is huge, but it's this one particularly confusing and troubling word in Greek, ionios. Ion is the noun that clearly means age. That's a period of time, chronological time. And ionios is the adjective for which we have no English equivalent. So it's often translated eternity and sometimes forever, which do not mean the same thing. And Ionios really means neither. I think it means of the age, and it usually refers to God's age or the age to come, or in the prophets, the day of the Lord, or just that day. As we've preached like a hundred some times, Scripture seems to view time something like this timeline. There are at least six ages that are like the six days of creation, followed by a seventh day that is the Lord's Sabbath, the Lord's Day, and our promised rest. That day in Genesis and the prophets is a unique day, to use the words of Zechariah the prophet, for it has no beginning and end. Indeed, it is the end. Sometimes in Hebrew thought, it's represented by an eighth day, which is an endless seventh day, which is actually not endless so much as end full, full of the end. The New Testament teaches that we have come to the end of the ages in Christ, who is the end and the Lord of the Sabbath, the seventh day. It was at the end of the sixth day of the week, sixth day of creation, around sixth hour of the day, that hanging on a tree in, in the garden on the holy mountain, Jesus lifted his head and cried, it is finished, and delivered up his spirit. On that tree, he gave us his life, his eternal life, which is the life of the age to come. And you see, that life is not like life in this age. That life does not come to an end because it is the end. And it is the beginning all at once. Christ's life is not bound by chronological time. Actually, chronological time is bound by the life of, of Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, writes Paul. He is before all things, and in him all, holds th all things hold together. I think, and most of the church has taught, that the thousand-year reign in Revelation 20 refers to you right now. You have a temporal body, a body subject to space and time, and yet you already have eternal life dwelling within you, the eternal life of Christ. So there is a power within you that you barely even begin to comprehend or believe or understand. He has begun to fill you and he will fill all things with himself. But now the millennium, the millennium is not really my point right now. My point is that eternity is not timeless. It contains all of time. And eternity is not time without end. It's all of time filled with the end who is also the beginning. In other words, everything old is constantly new in eternity. And so it is a philosophical impossibility for you to get bored in heaven. Children always say, do it again. 
And the grown-up person does it again, and he is nearly dead, writes G.K. Chesterton. If you've ever had little kids, you know this. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Well, Jesus is younger than we. He's the end and the beginning. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And this is the crazy thing. He says, we will be like him. That's what it says in 1 John. We will be like him. He's the firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, firstborn of many brethren and sistren. That's us. Well, I don't know if we'll simply do the same thing over again, but I'm pretty sure we'll do the same things over again in a new way. In the words of Isaiah, we'll build houses, plant vineyards, bear children, and maybe have sex, and even drive cars, but in a new way. No speed limits, I'm sure of it, new way. So eternity is not endless time, which is infinitely boring, and eternity is not timeless time, as if we did nothing and went nowhere. Eternity is not timeless so much as time full. We'll have time but time won't have us. We'll no longer be slaves of time. See, I think this is why you dream about going back to the future. But then you get confused when you start thinking through the space-time paradox, because you've got eternity in your heart, yet you're stuck in a mortal body with a temporal brain addicted to sin. It's why you think this thought, dang, knowing now what I didn't no, then, I sure wish I had those years to live over again. Well, maybe you do. For years, Susan and I prayed with a friend who had been horrifically abused in a satanic cult. She had lost five children in the most tragic ways. They had been born for calamity, in the words of Isaiah. And now sometimes she believed that she would be forever alone. In prayer, Jesus would take her back to events in the past and transform their meaning, because that's what he does. He's the plot to every story. He's the way, the truth, and the life in every moment, even though at first you don't see him there with you. On this particular night, my friend was just in agony, mourning the loss of her children, the fact that she would never raise them, and she thought she would never be married, never have a husband, always be single. But Jesus appeared to her in this vision, and he had done this over and over again, sometimes with her children, with her babies, showing her her, her babies. On this night, a, a thought occurred to me when he appeared to her, and I said, hey, your children died decades ago. Ask Jesus, just try and ask him, ask him, why are my children, why are my babies still young? She said, okay, and then she was silent for a minute and she asked him, and then all of a sudden I heard her gasp and wonder and she said, Peter, I just heard Jesus say, they're waiting for you to raise them. On the, on the throne, Jesus says, the Lord says, behold, I make all things new. Wouldn't that 
include all your wasted moments? And all your deepest longings that you thought could never be fulfilled? Well, I then said to her, now, now ask him if you're single. And she did, I remember she got quiet, and then I remember she looked at me with this huge grin on her face and said, oh, I'm not single. And that's the truth. She's the bride of Christ, the truth, who is also a man, 100% man. That's orthodox theology. And then I may say, okay, come on, that's crazy. And Peter, you can't go back in time. You can't. Why not? You know, physicists now say that the math, the physics, works in both directions. And the only way we know that time is moving in one direction and not the other is the second law of thermodynamics which states that in a closed system, a closed system, everything moves towards greater entropy, which is roughly equivalent to chaos, which means death. When Adam took the life of the good from the tree in the garden, he became a closed system and began to die. But on the holy mountain, death is no more, for the life of the good gives himself to us on the tree in the garden, and we begin to live. See, maybe we can't go back. Like we can go back and read a book a second time, right? Having understood the plot and so comprehending deeper and deeper meaning. In the words of T.S. Eliot, maybe we really can't arrive at the place we started and know it for the first time. No, I know this all seems unreal, but it's actually most real. And that's number two, reality. We think that love is just an ethereal idea. But there is absolutely nothing more concrete than love. God is love, and real love is God. We think the way, the truth, and the life are fleeting concepts, when in fact he is the foundation of reality. We think a miracle is an anomaly, but it's a moment of waking reality in the dream that has become a nightmare that we call this world. No, please don't let this worry you, and you don't have to believe me right now. I believe I'm telling you the truth. I've witnessed the evil one manifesting in the body of a dear friend who was struggling with a horrid event in her past. I've witnessed the evil one cursing God, cursing me, and threatening to destroy us all, and yet nailed to my couch by a piece of communion bread and a few drops of wine. Now, if I was you, I would think that I was insane. But for a moment, I think I witnessed the sanity of God, the logic of God, the power of God, the power of Christ. It wasn't an anomaly in reality. It was reality invading the anomaly that is this fallen world. You see, it wasn't bread from King Supers or wine from Tipsies that hold the evil, held the evil one pinned to the couch, bound the evil one. It was the love of Christ Jesus for my friend, his furious love revealed in a bit of bread and a bit of wine. It was the presence of the kingdom that is always at hand. Even better, it was the presence of the king. When Jesus rose from the dead, he walked through walls, not because he was an illusion and the walls were real, but because he's reality. (laughs) And all of our walls are, are just an illusion. Number one, eternity. Number two, reality. Number three, familiarity. The disciples asked the master to speak to them of death, writes Anthony DeMello. What will it be like, they asked. 
it will be as if a veil is ripped apart. And you will say in wonder, oh, it was you all along. He's the truth you desire in every statement. He's the life that you seek in every moment. He's the love that you crave in every encounter. Your every encounter. Remember that Jesus repeatedly said, he who seeks to save his life, his soul, his psyche, will lose it. But he who loses his life, his soul, his psyche, for my sake, will find it. It's your psyche that you lose, and it's your psyche that you find. Filled with truth, life, love, that's Jesus, and that's heaven. And so far from being unfamiliar, it's your home. I mean, it's literally the home that you have been homesick for your entire life. At last, you will be at home in yourself. Because you're not at home in yourself right now, are you? But you will be. Before my dad died, he had this ongoing vision of heaven. And this was wild, because this is my dad, the Presbyterian pastor who never had things like this, but it was like he, he would just shut his eyes and it would start happening. He'd, he'd tell me about this vision and his walks in these beautiful Pennsylvania woods. For dad, that was heaven. I remember thinking, oh God, that is so incredible, but I don't want Pennsylvania. <laughs> Sorry, Vince, you're from Pennsylvania. But that's what I thought, I don't want Pennsylvania, I want the Bahamas. I want to drive a Jeep Wrangler top down 60 miles an hour over bumpy dirt roads, blasting Leonard Skinner Freebeard with my 60-year-old bride and her 60-year-old heart and soul, but with her 18-year-old libido and her 21-year-old body and nothing but a string bikini. I want to drive that Jeep to an isolated beach where we'll have a picnic of roasted chicken, warm bread and red wine. We'll have communion, and that day will last a thousand years. That's my heaven. And I think I'll get that heaven. And Susan will get her heaven, which has something to do with Christmas, hugging each other in front of a fire and drinking hot chocolate, which to me right now sounds just totally boring. <laughs> so how her heaven won't diminish my heaven and my heaven won't diminish her heaven is something that my brain can't quite comprehend now, but if we're each to be filled with eternal life and immortal light and space-time is somehow relative to light and logos or meaning or reason, then these apparent contradictory realities may not be uh, only a possibility but a necessity. You know, St. Paul wrote this, hope does not disappoint us. I think he means all hope. Pennsylvania, the Bahamas, hot chocolate. Hope will not disappoint us and we will one day see that we can only actually hope in the good because evil is ultimately nothing but illusion and lies. It is ontologically non-subsistent. So once my hopes have been purified by the eternal fire and all my dreams have been filled with truth, faith, love, and life, I'm pretty sure my dad's gonna get Pennsylvania and I'm gonna get the beach and Susan will get hot chocolate and we'll all get each other and Jesus, the bridegroom, will rejoice in all of us together as his bride. As the young man rejoices over his bride, so he'll rejoice over you, says the prophets. Number four, heaven is communion. And now I know that you may be getting nervous, okay? But just hear me out. In heaven, I will not only live, 
my life. I will live Jesus' life, and Jesus will live my life, and I think we will each live each other's lives. This is what we do every time we read a book, right? You read about someone else's life and you kind of enter into their life. It's what you do every time you go to a party and you start telling stories, you share your life. But in heaven, the communion will be infinitely rich and no one will be insecure about or possessive of their life, their, their psyche. We have a hard time even imagining this because we cannot imagine life without insecurity and possessiveness, that is, w without, without sin. Well, you see, heaven does not appear to be a very private place. Everything whispered in private will be spoken from the rooftop, said Jesus, and yet no one will sin. Jesus did say there will be no giving or taking in marriage, but I doubt that's because no one is married. It must be because we're all married to Jesus and thus to one another, and no one, no one will want a divorce. That seems to be the big problem that Jesus has with all of this in Scripture. I'm saying that I think we'll share our psyches with God and with each other, which means that our relationships will be like those within the Godhead. Many persons and one substance, and that substance is love. John 17, Jesus even prays that this would be the case. Father, may they be one as we are one. Wow! Now I get really excited about all this until I think about other folks impinging on my romantic secluded beach picnic in the Bahamas with Susan. And yet I know that it cannot turn into anything evil or unfaithful. And I'm sure that in heaven everyone respects everyone else's wishes and I'm sure that my concern has something to do with the way I now experience shame and will probably experience after this sermon's over. And that's number five. Heaven is shame surrendered to grace. Now this confuses us, but the prophets prophesy an amazing transformation in shame. Ezekiel prophesies that when God atones for all the sins of Jerusalem, she will be ashamed of how she treated Sodom and Samaria and will then console them as beloved daughters. Through Zephaniah, God declares, I will turn their shame into praise. Heaven is those old sinners in Isaiah delighting in God's grace, planting vineyards and building houses. That's the new way in which they drive, the way they do it. Paul wrote, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you, and you see, that's the holy mountain where we took the life of Christ on a tree. That's the evil that exposed our shame. We each took the life of Christ, but Christ forgives his life to each of us. That's the good that covers our shame and makes all things new. That's grace. And that's the infinite game, which we preached about last time. That's number six. We don't love in order to win heaven and then stop playing the game. That's what religion will teach you. But you don't love in order to win heaven and then stop playing the game. We love to keep loving because that's the infinite game. <laughs> that's heaven. So if you don't like being good, you're not going to like heaven. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, said Isaiah. Life is not survival of the fittest. That's the finite game. That's death. <laughs> 
Life is the sacrifice of the fittest. That's the infinite game, eternal life. In heaven, the first will be last, and the last will be first. The exalted will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted, so that in turn those exalted may rejoice in being humbled, just as Jesus rejoiced in humbling himself for you. And then he rejoiced when the Father exalted him above every name that is named. Each will sacrifice for all, and all will be happy. Each will lose his life and find it in the very body that is the, the life, the body of Christ. Heaven is the dance of life in which all are continually first and last. All are continually exalted and humbled, all for the sake of each, which is the joy of all. Uh, and now number seven, absolute freedom. And this is the one that really is terrifying. So listen closely. To imagine that you create yourself, that you save yourself, that you justify yourself with something that you might call free will. Let me say that again so you're focused, okay? <laughs> to imagine that you create yourself, save yourself, and justify yourself with something you might call free will is the very heart of original sin. To imagine that you can make yourself God is evil. But what if God imagined that he could make you himself? You know, like his body, or his son, or his daughter, kind of like his image or likeness. Would that be evil? Well, I think that would be grace. Only God is absolutely free. Only God has an absolutely free, he is absolute free will. Only God is absolutely free. But, but what if you learned that God desired to reign and rule over all reality from a throne in the depths of your own soul? And like Jesus reveals to the church in Laodicea, it seems that he, God the Father and God the Son, would like you to sit there with him, with them, and reign and rule. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And I am convinced that we have absolutely no idea how free he intends us to be. But now if you're scared, if you're worried about something that I said in this sermon, if you think you might not like heaven, please remember that we're like infants right now. We're like infants in the womb talking about mom and dad. <laughs> Haven't been born yet. We have a big brother, firstborn of all creation. He's telling us stuff, but we haven't, we, we can't conceive it. So about much of this, I could be quite wrong, but about this one thing, I don't think it's possible for me to be wrong. I don't think it's possible for you to stand before the throne of God and look around at what you see and go, dang, I kind of hoped heaven would be better than this. This is boring. Now, you might be terrified if you don't like heaven, but I don't think you could be bored. And why does this all matter? Well, it matters because you're knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Y'all are. If the door opens and you don't like what's on the other side, the only place to run and hide is hell. Hell is for people that don't want to go to heaven. You understand? Hell is on the timeline. 
You can hide there. You can hide here for a time, but why would you want to go there at all? Why would you want to stay here at all? We can't take ourselves to there, but, but gosh, if God is coming to take you to, you to there or, or there to here, you know, if you have faith that heaven is your home, Far from making you useless in this world, it will utterly transform the way you live in this world. And Satan knows that. Satan knows that if you think there's no finish line, you'll stop running. Satan knows that if you think there's no victory, you'll stop fighting. If you think there's no banquet, you'll become addicted to what? The appetizers. If you think there's no home for you, the journey won't be an adventure. It will be a nightmare of wandering through the wilderness. If you think there's no destination, well, you're kind of already in hell. And if you think there's no music, you certainly will do no dancing. But if you hope, this world will begin to lose its grip on you. And you will begin to change this world You'll begin to reign and rule with Jesus right now. You're the new Jerusalem. You're the new Jerusalem coming down. John said he saw it coming down. And it's not boring. <laughs> Mel was a Vietnam vet in his early 20s, dying of cancer. Deeply depressed, he decided to enroll in a class while he was getting medical treatment at Union Seminary in New York. There was a class on caring for the dying. So he went to enroll and he saw this other class on the book of Revelation taught by the controversial professor Daniel Berrigan. And so he thought, well, what the hell? I'll check out the class. And so he enrolled. The first day of class, Berrigan began as he usually did. But, Berigen, or, but Mel didn't know this was the way that Berigen usually began. He would just walk into the room and sit down and observe a time of contemplative silence. It, it made Mel terribly uneasy. And then when Berigen's eyes rested on Mel, it made him incredibly nervous, visibly nervous. After a while, Berigen just looked at him and said, What's the matter? At this point, Mel was pale. He was a pitiful figure. And this professor had the audacity to ask him, what's the matter? All sorts of answers came, impudent answers uh, uh, came to his mind, but then he just blurted out, I'm dying! I'm dying! I'm dying of cancer! Without skipping a beat, without any apparent sorrow or regret. Berenjen just looked at Mel and said, well, that must be very exciting. The statement changed Mel's life. He began to live his life. Turns out the cancer went away, but that's not why he lived. He lived because he was no longer afraid to die. So anyway, this is the door. And it's anything but boring on the other side. And so on that night, on the holy mountain, just before we took his life on the tree, he took bread and broke it, 
saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, uh, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. The life is in the blood, eternal life, and you will discover it's not, it's not, it's not boring. Amen. Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember what Isaiah said? Your God will be your glory. <laughs> That's just like the craziest sentence. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So everything actually is going according to plan. Hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, to entropy, and obtain the freedom, the freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in travail, the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we, we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait, we eagerly wait for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we're saved. And now that doesn't mean just like you get your ticket punched so you get on the train when you die. That means you're saved right now from despair and depression and meaningless. In this hope we're saved. So in the name of Jesus, don't lose hope. Hope. And it will not disappoint you. Amen.
Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. 